they're advertising. A Christmas ornament for your Christmas tree that counts down the days, even the hours, until Christmas. It must be battery operated it, uh, uh, because um, it's able to speak or make sounds and it sounds out the time. I guess uh, Hallmark has learned to adapt, to change, uh, unlike the post office. Uh, they have learned uh, that uh, mailings and cards uh, were limited uh, and so they have gone into other products. We don't write and send cards the way we once did. Well, it's got me to thinking, and unlike the beasts of the field, humans are particularly and keenly anticipatory. That is, we look and plan for the future. Uh, this is, in, in my thinking and, and reflection upon it, an extraordinary ability that we have as human beings. Now, birds build their nests in view of the coming winter, and squirrels gather their nuts. But what is at work here is not so much a plan as an instinct. It is not so much a reflection and anticipation of what's going to take place in a number of weeks but it is just simply something that kicks in uh, with uh, no consciousness of what is going on in a real way. We, we however, employ our abilities in many and various ways in anticipation of the future. And um, we, we are able to safeguard ourselves and able to anticipate what's going to be down the road and to prepare for it. Uh, however, we don't always employ our abilities uh, in a moral and useful way. We waste so much in life. We, we allow opportunities uh, to slip away and we ignore what we know about the inevitable future. This is why the psalmist and uh, the truths of the scriptures, the great truths, sometimes are in just a few words. He prayed, so teach us, Lord, to number our days that we might apply our hearts to wisdom. That came readily to mind because of the funeral this week. Our text, though, is about the future, and we are to prepare for it. If you look through this passage of Scripture, James chapter 5, verses 7 through 10 or 11, uh, you see that we are being called as Christians to make preparation for the days and months and years that are ahead. We are, in fact, to prepare for an end. And I would like just simply to read a few verses again uh, to make sure that you understand that. The writer says, be patient then, brothers, until the Lord's coming. That is an end. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop and how patient he is for the autumn spring rains. You too be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. Two times he uses the phrase in a short compass, the Lord is coming. 
And then he says, don't grumble against each other or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. In my house, when somebody comes to the door, you may hear some scurrying. I don't know. We're getting ready. It's quick. Get to the door. I'm fortunate to even hear it sometime. He goes on to say, brothers, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we consider blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance. So there is an end. There is a terminus uh, quem and a terminus uh, quo, a beginning and an end. And in this case, it is said that the end is always nearer than you think, for the Lord is standing at the door. Now, this reminded me immediately when I read it earlier in the week of that wonderful passage in the book of Revelation, in which Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock, and if anyone hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and sup with him and he with me. That is one of the great invitations, of course, in the Bible, and it is inviting us to open our hearts to Christ, to receive him in our hearts and lives, to know him in a personal, intimate way. There are three comings of Christ, if you did not know. St. Augustine talks about three comings. He, he covers all of the bases. Of course, there is the first coming when he came at Christmas. There is the second coming when he comes at the end in judgment. And there is this third coming where he is coming to us as he stands at the door and he comes into our hearts and our lives. John Stott, when, when he wrote his book on Christianity, now here is a world-class scholar and he, he, he purposes in his little book, and he wrote many, one little book called Christian Basics to convey in the shortest possible way what it means to be a Christian. And he, and he takes care in that book to, to remind people that being a Christian is not necessarily being able to quote or a, a creed or just reading scripture in some sense just praying now all of those things are holy and important being a Christian he says is not uh, an affiliation with a group of believers as such though that is terribly important in the scriptures he says being a Christian is knowing a person knowing Christ it's knowing a person it's knowing Christ just as I know you and you know me, we come to know Jesus Christ. And the whole structure, you will, if you will, of reality is geared so that you can know God. We have agnostics in our midst who say we cannot know God. And the reason is that they're trying to reach God through the powers of their reasoning or they're trying to scour the heavens and see any evidence and they look at nature and they see no God. It is because God has come to us in a person, in a manger who grew up so that we might know him. Whatever you understand of Christianity, it is knowing a person Therefore, he says, stand firm. 
Stand firm, for the Lord is coming. Stand firm. In uh, another way, this, this doesn't quite capture to, for me this, this passage in the NIV. I wish they had translated it as you can translate it, and that is strengthen your hearts. The phrase here can be translated where it says, stand firm, and you see that we are to stand firm. Standing is an important metaphor. We are to stand and resist Satan, for instance. But I would rather see this translated uh, briefly as strengthen your hearts. And let me tell you why. The heart is a wonderful thing, isn't it? it, it the poets capture it in many and various ways. And, and sometimes the heart has its reasons, as, as the writer says, that reason knows not of. The heart is a wonderful organ, both physically and what it stands for in our culture and in our life. But the truth is the heart is fickle. For it stands for our emotions, and it's much more fickle than our reason. Think of reason and intellect for a moment. We change throughout life. Every cell in our body is in a constant way changing. Nothing stands still in the world outside of us or the world inside of us. It is always changing. Nothing, nothing stands still. But we do have a wonderful faculty called reason, and it is pretty much as much as possible resistant to change. We, in fact, try to find reasons to remain in the belief system that we have. I'm thankful for that. When a challenge comes to my faith, or a challenge comes to my worldview, maybe you are like me, our first response is to resist and to find reasons to continue our belief in what we believe in. And that's a psychological mechanism, and it's wonderful and it's good, and there's nothing wrong with that. But the point is, our intellect is actually more stable than our hearts. Now, notice I did not say that your intellect was greater than your heart. I said it is more stable. For the Bible speaks a lot of the heart, of the emotions. And oh, how our emotions and our sentiments change. As I, as I tell people, and I've told you before, I, I can hear a, a be in the most happy mood in the world on Saturday. I wasn't such a happy mood yesterday, but I can be in a very happy mood. But it can all go down the drain in a heartbeat when I hear the wrong ball score. Yeah, I'm that fickle, that prone to change. Just leaves a nasty taste in my mouth when my teams do not win. And so I'm not quite on my game after that. It's my heart. It's the problem. It's the way I'm constituted. And we make almost all of our decisions in one way or another by our hearts and through our hearts, don't we? We don't really make our, our decisions based on logic and reason. We might think we do, but most of us really make our decisions based on our hearts. It was the philosopher David Hume, to his credit, who understood that we make our decisions not so much on reason, but sentiment. 
And that is the most fickle, changeable part of our personality and character. This is the reason that the apostle says, uh, in this case, James, the brother of the Lord, strengthen your heart. Strengthen it. It makes a great deal of difference what you feed your heart. And so much more so as you see the end approaching. Your heart. It is the seat of your emotions. It can take you to tremendous heights. Your heart can sprout eagle's wings and fly and soar, but it also can feel as if it's tied to an anchor of lead. We are therefore then to pay attention to our hearts. Pay attention to your heart and be patient, he says. I like the fact that he introduces Job here. It's kind of a surprise. If you read through this, you're not quite expecting Job to be introduced. And he's introduced in such a way that he's almost considered in the same language of the prophets of the Old Testament. And I never thought of Job as a prophet. But in a real sense, if he is not a true prophet in the truest and highest sense of the word, he's certainly an example for us to follow for he was a saint. And so when the, when the Lord's brother charges us to be patient, as well as to guard our hearts, and that's one way of guarding your heart, is to learn patience. He introduces Job. You know, life is not easy. I, I hate to use trite language, but I don't know how else to say it. It's difficult. I can remember Wagon Smith in prayer meetings and almost a very few of you will know that name. And he would always say, people think I have it easy, but they, they really don't see all that I'm exposed to. And then he told a story about a man who was apparently from all outward external ways the richest man in the church, but he contributed very little financially or of his time. And Wigan says, we came to find out later in his life that he had extraordinary burdens and financial situations that took up all of his time for he was caring for relatives. We're so quick to judge. So impatient in our comments. So rash in everything we do. Patience is a very broad term in the Bible. It's just not the ability to wait, but it's the ability to hold your tongue and to speak the right thing. It's the ability to not take an action when you want with everything in you to take it. Of course, it's not the right time. And of course, life reveals who we are, does it not? It certainly revealed who Job was. What does not reveal what you are is when things are going good. It's always revealed what you are when things are going against you. And he says, therefore, don't grumble. Don't grumble. Uh, don't complain. I had a bad day yesterday on the grumbling and complaining part. I'll confess to you and to my wife. <laughs> Public confession is good for the soul, is it not? But, you know, I don't plan on that. It just slips up on me. 
Does it you? I don't think I'm in a sorry mood and all of a sudden I realize I'm graining and grumbling and complaining and irritable. This is why we need to guard our hearts. We miss out on so much that is good. And the way you do that is to remember that the Lord is at the door. The Lord is at the door. What a metaphor. Think of the Lord at your door. You're inside the house. The Lord is at your door. Now, that is a way of saying that life is pretty short and it'll be over. We either go to our Lord through our own end or he comes to us. He comes to us. There is harvest time. Don't grumble. Be patient. Guard your heart. This is what these reminders are to do for us. I haven't read this story fully, but I plan on this afternoon finishing it up. But I read a speech of a lieutenant general in the Marines and his son was killed recently. And he gave this speech. It's on the Internet. We haven't paid much attention to it in our national life yet. Maybe we will due to his speech. But he was either in Iraq or Afghanistan. I don't remember which. I haven't researched it thoroughly. And here came a truck. And these two Marines standing at the outposts began to recognize, as all the people around did, something is wrong with this truck. It's not right. It's not normal. It's not slowing down. And behind these two Marines were the barracks for the soldiers. And about six seconds before that truck was to reach them, they recognized that they, they were in a serious problem. That the truck was barreling down toward the barracks full of explosives. And they began to fire their rifles at the sixth second and the fifth second and the fourth second and the third second until it hit them, but they shredded that truck with their rifles and killed the person, and it blew up. They died. They saved the barracks. Six seconds. They had only six seconds to stop the truck. Six seconds to the end of their lives. They stood their ground. Six seconds to live. Well, in the light of eternity, our little feeble lives live no more than six seconds. We are as a vapor that appears and then we are soon gone. How do you live? The Lord's at the door. There is an end and Christmas is a beginning, but it is also an end. Christ came. He didn't live very long, did he? At most, 33. Six seconds. Well, you say, Pastor, I know people who live to be 90 and 100. Six seconds. That's all it is. The Lord is at the door. 
Christmas is a gracious and marvelous reminder that our life is short in this world, but my friend, it is long in the next. Praise be to God. Amen.